Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. What do you do when you feel like your faith has failed? We're going to talk with a special guest today who went through a process of deconstruction. We're going to find out what caused his doubt, how he walked through it, and where he ended up in just a moment. jump in with today's guest, I want to let you know about something I just found out. So apparently, iTunes and other platforms that stream and offer podcasts for download calculate their charts based on downloads, not based on the number of people who stream the podcasts. So if you're a regular listener of this podcast and you like it, you want other people to find out about it, then I'll, I'd just love to ask you to download the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on rather than simply streaming it. So I, I just found this out. And, you know, when, when a podcast starts to do better in the charts, more people can find out about it. So we always appreciate you sharing this podcast with your friends and people in your sphere of influence. And also it helps a lot if you jump over to iTunes and leave a good review. Got some fun things coming up on the calendar. So for those of you who know my story, when my faith was in crisis, one of the ways God helped rebuild my faith, or what you might call reconstruct my faith, was uh, through the help of a seminary called Southern Evangelical Seminary. I audited classes online and pretty much just bugged the professors (laughs) with all my questions, and they were so gracious and just showing the love of Christ to me always. And so it's kind of a fun full circle moment that I get to see speak at their national conference coming up here in just a couple weeks, October 11th and 12th in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's called Why Truth Still Matters. You can still buy tickets. You can go to ses.edu for more information. I would love to see you. If, if you are a regular listener of the podcast and you're going to the national conference this year, please come find me and, and say hi, and I would love to meet you. The next thing I've got going on is a women's conference. Now, if you are in the Tucson, Arizona area. I would love to see you at the Hope Community Church Women's Conference. And this is going to be happening on November 8th and 9th. And you can go to hopetucson.com for more information on that. The next thing I've got going on is the Maven Conference, and this is going to be January 24th and 25th in Oxford, Mississippi. So many of you will remember Brett Kunkel, who has been a guest on my podcast before. Brett is doing some amazing work among young people, helping them recover the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God's story, the beauty of the gospel. And he does a lot of apologetics. He takes kids on mission trips to Berkeley College campus to interact with atheists, to Salt Lake City, Utah, to interact with Mormons. And it's through these trips that he regularly sees these kids just get lit on fire for Christ and get lit on fire to learn more about what they believe and why they believe it. So the Maven Conference will be Oxford, Mississippi. You can go to maventruth.com for more information on that. I would love to see you there as well. My guest today is Dominic Doan, and he's a speaker and author of the book, When Faith Fails, Finding God in the Shadow of Doubt, and that came out uh, last February. He is also the lead pastor of Westside, a Jesus church, and that's in Portland, Oregon. 
He has his master's in theology from the University of Oxford and a master's in religion from Liberty. And we're going to talk a little bit about this as we get more into his story, but he lived as a missionary in, in how do you say this, Dominic, v- Vanuatu? That's close. Yeah, uh, it's uh, pronounced Vanuatu. Um, Vanuatu, okay. And I hear that there was a, a Survivor series that was based on it like 10 years ago or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, good. We'll have to talk about that. And also lived in Mexico as a, a missionary. Mm-hmm. And so he lives with his family there in, in Portland. And you can connect with Dominic on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, just at Dominic Doan. So Dominic, I am so glad to welcome you to the podcast. Uh, we got to meet uh, a few months back when I was in Oregon. Uh, you and I actually share the same literary agent. So, yes. so we got to chat a little bit and we talked about doubt which of course is the subject of your latest book. And, uh, and, and I, I think you're an interesting person in the whole conversation surrounding doubt and deconstruction because you are one of the few people that I know that went through a process of doubt. And then this word, we always talk about deconstruction, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. But you, you reconstructed mm. back to what I would call a more historic Christianity because <laughs> we always hear about people who deconstruct, but there's almost an implication that if you deconstruct your beliefs, you're just, you're simply going to just stay in some kind of a deconstructed state, or maybe you'll drift into some kind of pluralism or atheism, Mm. but people like you, and I think even people like me in some way are, are coming out to tell a different story. There was a process of doubt, a process of deconstruction, and, you know, however far we got into that process, we didn't stay there. We actually began to reconstruct our worldview and reconstruct our faith. And so I want the listeners to walk with you a bit on your journey through doubt. So let's just start first. Just tell us a bit about your backstory. Uh, where did you grow up and were you raised in a Christian home? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Oxford in England, um, and at the age of eight, moved to Southern California. You would never guess I was born in England based on the accent, right. although although I, I still do say tomato. That's like the one word I refuse to compromise on. Um, okay. How about potato? <laughs> no, no. I've sadly moved over to the American oh, way. Okay. But actually, you okay. know, I, I just became a U.S. citizen um, two months ago. Um, so I, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Instagram. So like, Congratulations. Finally, yeah. Thank you. So I'm a dual citizen. Uh, still, still English, but also American now. But, but that means you have to say tomato now. Oh, it's like in I, the Constitution. <laughs> it's in the Constitution. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, I was eight. Uh, our family moved to, to Southern California, and then um, wasn't initially raised in a Christian home at all. Um, in fact, when we moved to California shortly after that, our family went through this kind of crisis. Uh, Parents uh, separated. They were in the process of divorcing. And my dad at that time was an alcoholic, and um, drugs as well had a huge hold on his life. Um, so we went through a real, real dark, dark time. Um, and then my mom, um, she became a Christian, got invited out to church, and heard the gospel. It's actually a Calvary Chapel church in Southern California, Calvary Chapel Vista. And uh, and she brought my sister and I along, and I was right around ten years old when I first heard the gospel, and it just like resonated uh, the truth of it, the hope of it, um, mm-hmm. especially in the context we found ourselves in, and uh, gave my life to the Lord as to my sister. And I, I remember um, at the age of ten, like every night, my mom, my sister, and I would get on our knees and we pray for my dad and just like ask for a miracle. Um, mm. that time he's living in his car in San Diego 
And uh, after months of just every night praying, it was just amazing. My mom leading the charge in this. She's like just showing so much grace and forgiveness. Amazing woman. One night mm. he comes over and tears streaming down his face and just said, I, I need to give my life to God. And uh, he sat wow. up on the porch of our home and uh, opened up his heart to the love of Jesus. And it like absolutely transformed him. And so kind of my childhood was like, you know, like Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, the worst mm. of times. Like it was really a juxtaposition um, where first 10 years was like a lot of brokenness, a lot of chaos. And my parents then got back together. They tore up the divorce papers um, wow. and, and, and started going to church. And man, as, as can often happen, I think, when, when um, someone gets saved out of a pretty rough past, sometimes I think the pendulum can swing so far that it, it turns into legalism. And uh, so mm. really growing up through middle school and high school, uh, to be honest, like our, our home was really, really legalistic. Um, yes, God and Bible, Jesus Church was the centerpiece of it, but it was kind of a form of it that was mm. fairly uh, lack, it lacked grace, shall we say. Um, mm. Yeah, so that, that in a nutshell is kind of my story. And um, I, mm. I don't know about you, but it's like for me, I've always just been one that has questions about things and um, wrestling with yeah. different topics theologically. And yeah, I remember even at the age of 10, just <laughs> wrestling with God over certain things I'd experienced and seen because of what happened with our family. And um, right. th those types of questions just began to grow and, and snowball um, mm. all the way through high school and into college as well. So as a child, you, really did witness the power of the gospel at work Absolutely. in people's lives. You had an experiential yeah. type of, you know, th that's an important part of, of evidence, Eva, is, even as is our experiences of God. And I had similar experiences when my parents would take us and do a lot of street ministry. So I, I watched, uh, you know, drug dealers and prostitutes find Jesus. And then mm -hmm. you would actually see their lives radically change and, and radically transform. So I had a similar experience in, in that I... I got to witness the authentic gospel at work in people's lives. And it sounds like you had that experience too with what God did in your dad's life. But as you're describing, which I think a lot of us can relate with, you know, some of that legalism, I think it was just the, the era too and the, and the culture that we yeah. were living in in, in <laughs> those times true. where a lot of legalism was, <laughs> was kind of, we, we all had to fight that a little bit. Uh, so you mentioned that you had questions. You kind of always yeah. were wrestling through these questions. When did you begin to have significant doubts about the truth of Christianity? Like to where you were at the point where, man, this, this is, I'm really questioning if this is true. And, and it was, was wow. what was the cause yeah. of that? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I think doubt can um, be latent in us and can grow over years. And we don't even realize it's there. Um, and especially oh, if you yeah. come from a church context where, um, or a religious context where we're, we're told to suppress our doubts or doubts are evil. Therefore, don't ask questions. And this isn't a, a place for that. Um, mm. If that's a context you're in, then you, you can push your doubts down. And I think that's what I did for years. Um, but they were there yeah. and, and they, would, they would emerge every now and then. And I think, again, the seeds of it was just because some of the things we went through as a family. And um, yeah, just seeing my dad struggle with alcoholism, and drug use and all that that brought into our family. So those questions were there. Um, but then I would say um, right after high school, I uh, went down and spent a year working at an orphanage for disabled orphans in Mexico. 
And that was just such an incredible time, uh, stretching and challenging and beautiful and messy all at once. And um, th- these were kids who had severe, severe disabilities. And so God's just breaking my heart open and giving me love and teach me what ministry is through that. But I also really remember wrestling, just seeing the level of pain um, and anguish that many of these kids were going through. Um, you know, the, the, the boy I took care of, his name is Ricky, and severe cerebral palsy, um, couldn't eat on his own, um, couldn't dress himself, couldn't talk and communicate. Uh, even breathing was labored for him. And mm. that just began to... Uh, I think it was uh, Daniel Dennett, the atheist, who used the term universal acid. Um, and he's, mm. you know, from an atheistic perspective, how that can erode your faith. And, and I just kind of felt the, the acid of doubt in a sense of like mm. gnawing at me. Um, kind of corrosive effect. But yeah, that's corrosive effect. And I, I want to be careful that, you know, not paint doubt in, in a negative way because there, there was a redemptive edge to this. I think mm. that was the beginning of God wanting to take me further and deeper and asking harder questions than I knew how to ask. Mm. But I did feel this kind of corrosion of like, why? And it's a question we all wrestle with, right? It's the question behind all questions, I think. Yeah, the problem yeah. of evil and suffering. And um, so that was when it really began to materialize and take on flesh and blood and um, began to, to ask me hard questions um, about what yeah. I really believed. Then, you know, fast forward, um, uh, became missionary in Vanuatu, was there for three years. And that was an amazing experience. I was there, I think I first began to wrestle with problems of theology and I'm teaching mm-hmm. through scripture. Uh, it was an amazing time. We lived in the in the jungle, no electricity, no running water. Um, we spoke this crazy language called Bislama, which if you've never heard of it, is like this combination of caveman meets Tarzan meets pig Latin. Um, like seriously, wow. um, like the word the word slingshot, uh, you would you wouldn't say slingshot, you would say Himmy one elastic blong shootem pigeon. Um, or, wow. or like the word piano is, uh, hit me one big fella box where you got white teeth, blong him. Mo, he got black teeth, blong him. Mo, suppose Whoa. you kill him teeth, blong him. Him, he sing out long you. That's the word piano. So, so Th- like, that's one word. What that's, you just that's said. One, that's one word. Yeah. So <laughs> wow. it's, it's like this really fascinating, descriptive caveman style language. So I'm teaching the Bible in this language. Um, wow. and that, that was fascinating. You can imagine like coming across a word like propitiation, trying to explain right. that in Islam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. But I remember there, like, um, I had like seriously no Bible training up to that point, other than what I learned from my pastor, who was an amazing Bible teacher. But, um, you know, I, I hadn't really been able to get, you know, go to school or read a ton of books on theology. So I'm just thrown in the deep end, trying to learn it. Yeah. And, and yeah, that raised a ton of questions theologically. Fast forward still, uh, moved to Europe, got married, uh, was an English teacher for a while in Vienna, then became a pastor in Maui. And, uh, and you know this, like anyone in ministry, you just start walking with people um, through seasons of suffering. And man, uh, some of the stories, uh, some of the things that people went through, again, it was like that, that Mexico time, um, yeah. just horrific stuff, whether it's suicide yeah. or um, a mom who been praying for a child for years and finally gets one, then it's, it, it's born dead and you're sitting yeah. with the family in grief. And so again, it was like that old, um, that haunting sense of why. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we all wrestle with that. We all go through. Yeah. Well, we do. In fact, I think that, that 
what you're describing is underneath a lot of people's doubts. In fact, many people will be familiar with Tony Campolo and his son, Bart Campolo. Bart, for for years, was a Christian minister following in his dad's footsteps and uh, began to do inner city work and saw some extreme suffering and and situations of of great uh, grief in those situations. And that's what started his deconstruction. Of course, he deconstructed all the way into secular humanism. He's actually a secular humanist chaplain Mm -hmm. uh, at a college now, and, and, uh, and he's very open about describing this process that he went through and it but it's kind of started from that same root of of looking around and seeing great suffering in the world and I think that that informs the doubt of a lot of people and and understandably so 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 let's talk about deconstruction uh when I spoke with you in Oregon um you mentioned that you had gone through a process of deconstruction tell us what is deconstruction and what did that process look like for you yeah absolutely um Deconstruction, you know, I think of it in terms of like a house. Um, you're you're pulling apart the house. So you're you're deconstructing it. It was once something. Now it's it's something else. Um, and there was a season in my life where, yeah, I uh, decided to take time to really reevaluate aspects of my faith. Um, so, like I mentioned, I was a pastor for several years, and then ended up moving back to Oxford to do my master's program. And I'd reach a point in my life, just like, I, I need to be honest about some of these questions I have. And I don't know what to do with them. I've been wrestling mm. with them for years. And like you, yeah, I'd read a lot of the books of kind of progressive Christians, what they were saying. I'd read a lot of the new atheists and what they were saying. And, and that raised a ton. Kind of the same thing at times, aren't they? <laughs> very much, very much. I think one actually leads into the other. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm reading this stuff and I'm like, okay, I'm in this season that I'm here. Um, I'm just going to be brutally honest with myself and with God and reevaluate uh, aspects of faith. And that first year at Oxford, um, and again, all of this was intentional because I, I just, I didn't want to have a faith that was inherited. I didn't want to have a faith that was fake. I didn't want to have a faith mm-hmm. that was, well, I've always believed this. I, I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be a byproduct of like authentic groaning, wrestling, weeping with God and knowing him. Um, so that first year, uh, really centered on atheism. I just thought, you know, like the whole progressive Christian uh, movement right now, um, I kind of saw where that was heading. And for my journey, I I dabbled into that a little bit, but then I quickly saw where it was, where that would take me. And Mm -hmm. so I just thought, you know, I'm just going to go leapfrog past that. And I'm going to see what the atheists have to say. And uh, so I took a year, um, and just read old atheists and new atheists, every, everything from Nietzsche to Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and others. And um, just ask myself a question like, do I believe this? Um, and so I talk about it in my book, um, how it, it was like an eclipse, you know, of the, of the sun. It was disorienting. It was confusing. It was hard. Um, it was also necessary, I think, for, for my journey. And I wouldn't say I ever reached a point of like, I'm done believing I'm walking away. It's like, I still, mm-hmm. still believed. Um, but I wanted to make sure I knew why. And, uh, yeah. So that season deconstruction yeah. for me was more like reevaluating the piece of furniture that were in my life, taking them outside, dusting them off saying, do I need this? <laughs> do I yeah, believe, do yeah. I believe this? And if I do, then you're welcome back in, you know, let's put you back in. You may not yeah. be in the same part of the room, but 
but you're, you're there. And so it's, you know, it's kind of a, a house cleaning event for me. Yeah, that, that's a good way to look at it. When you were reading the, the atheists, all, you know, we'll include all the atheists, the old ones, the new ones. Mm. What do you think was the most troubling thing for you and for your faith? What, if you could pick one thing, one argument somebody brought out, one philosophical observation, mm. what, do, what do you think caused the most wrestling in your own soul when you read these works? Wow. That is such a good question. I, I would say, um, the one that caused the greatest amount of grief was old Testament violence, uh, mm. because it's a, a marriage of two topics that I have been wrestling with. Uh, many people do. Um, so it's scripture, which I love, I've always just loved the Bible. I remember when our family first got saved and, uh, a lot of kids in our home and, um, you know, as a middle schooler, I would take my Bible and the only peace and quiet I could get was in the bathrooms. So I'd like lock myself in the bathroom for hours at a time and just read mm. through the Bible. Cause I just, I love the Bible. Um, yeah. but, but then, you know, the older you get, the more you realize there are parts of scripture that, uh, at a surface level are like disturbing or confusing yeah. or, you know, weird, like thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Like, what, what do you do? Right. With that? <laughs> and, right. that, and that's just like the beginning, not to mention like the Canaanites and the wars and, and all of that. And so that's something I've been struggling with. Um, and then you marry that to the problem of evil, right? Um, violence and, and suffering, yeah. and hurt and bloodshed. Why, why is there so much pain in the world? And so you bring these two issues together around scripture. And that's a really, really troubling and hard and necessary question to, to wrestle with. And so that one for me was, that was a tough yeah. one. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. found that in the new atheists, um, a lot of the, the arguments they had were more emotive. In other words, it was just trying to conjure up emotion in people, but it wasn't necessarily grounded in, in fact. And we actually began to strip past the layers of just the language they're using. Um, I think of Christopher Hitchens, yeah. who's like brilliant with his words. But when yeah. you actually ask the question like, well, okay, what is he saying here? Sure, he's funny, he's witty, but you strip that past. What's the argument? And you find there's not a whole lot there. So I, I did discover that in atheism. Um, but then, you know, some of those questions about the problem of evil, I think stung a lot. We're talking with Dominic Doan about his process of doubt and deconstruction. And when we come back, we're going to talk about his reconstruction. Where's he at now? He's written about this in his book called When Faith Fails. One of the things I think about when I think about my own process of doubt and deconstruction, it occurred to me at one point during this process that if I had been made aware of some of the questions and some of the skeptical arguments that would have been presented to me as an adult, I don't think they would have rattled me quite as much. I don't think they would have had the same effect that they did have. That's why I'm so passionate to promote a great ministry called Impact 360 to you. If Impact 360 would have existed when I was a teenager and I would have gone to one of their summer experiences or maybe even done their gap year program, I think, I think my whole process of doubt would have looked a lot different than it did. Impact 360 exists to help equip young people to live out the truth and the beauty of the gospel in this ever more increasingly post-Christian world. 
One of the experiences is called Immersion. It's a two-week experience where they're going to get discipleship training, leadership training. They're going to get mentored by an amazing staff. They actually get to go out and talk with atheists. They get to talk with people of other worldviews and get to put what they've learned into action and into practice. Right now, if you go to impact360.org slash immersion, you can use my name as a promo code for $50 off your tuition. That's Alisa, A-L-I-S-A. Again, impact360.org slash immersion. Well, let's talk about your reconstruction process. Uh, what what was it that brought you some peace on some of these issues? How did you work through some of this? Like, I love that metaphor of taking the furniture outside, dusting it off, and deciding if you need to put it back in the house or not. And I imagine at times it even felt like, am I even in the right house? And so yeah. um, what, what did that process look like for you? And how did you begin to put the pieces back together? Yeah, you know, I I, I think we're all kind of works in process. And, um, I don't think there was any one moment like, ah, I've got all the answers and like a jigsaw puzzle. It's, it's all there. Um, I think it was a number of things though. Um, one is learning and you mentioned this on, on podcasts you had with Justin Briarly, which was excellent. Um, just the importance of trust, um, how God wants that from us. Not, it's not necessarily certainty for years. I I've been obsessed with this certainty and gobbling up right. the books, like 101 answers to life's hardest questions or, you know what I mean? Remember yeah. the nineties, like apologetic right. oh, yeah. style. Yeah. And, and again, not to, not to bash that. There's a ton of beautiful things there, but my faith was kind of predicated on like, okay, I need to have every single answer. And if, if not, then there's something wrong. And, and I believe that God's called us, invited us into, into relationship and at, at root of relationship is trust and also, um, growth and uh, exploration. So I think of my, my own wife, Elisa. Um, we've been married now for a while. Um, there's a lot I know about her. Um, she's a morning person. She loves to cook. She loves to paint. She loves interior design. Uh, she used to like cats, and then she turned from the dark side, and we got a dog. Uh, so there's <laughs> a lot I know about her. Um, but then there's also a lot I don't. And by that, I mean, like, there are times she surprises me. Like, she'll respond yeah. to a situation. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't see that coming or she'll share a story with me like from her past. Like, Oh, that's really fascinating. Or, you know, humor comes out and it's like, she's catching me off guard. She's surprising me. And, and I realize in our relationship, like there are questions that are aching to be asked. Like there, there are riddles mm. that are wanting to be solved. Um, and, and I, I see in relationship that mystery kind of is the lifeblood of intimacy. Uh, if I knew everything about my wife, like literally knew every atom, um, if I knew every thought she had before she spoke it, if I knew where she was at any given second, not only would that be kind of creepy, but I, I think it would kind of <laughs> would kind of hinder the progression of love, right? Because mm. true love is the pursuit of love, and and it's because it's an evolving, growing relationship that keeps it alive. And so I actually think if we look at our relationship with God and through that lens, not certainty having every single answer, not to say that there aren't amazing, robust answers out there, which there are. Um, mm-hmm. But if we're, we're pursuing him in deep relationship, even if there are things we don't fully understand, even if there are riddles that have yet to be solved, it can grow mm-hmm. and thrive. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, yeah. he, he walked through that too, in the grief observed. I mean, he calls God the great iconoclast. Um, and, and yet his view of God gradually was reconstructed 
And until we have faces, there's this beautiful haunting quote. He says, I now know why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer before yeah. for your face, all questions die away. And so for mm-hmm. me, the reconstruction project was kind of learning and I'm still learning what mm-hmm. it means to say, okay, I'm okay. I'm, I'm all right. Not having every single answer to every single question. I, I'm okay living in the tension of an unresolved faith. Mm. Yet still my love for you, Lord, is growing and it's deepening and my walk with you is becoming more intimate than ever. Well, that's a great example because I think sometimes in the more skeptical circles, uh, you know, thinkers that that kind of lean that way in the more, uh, you know, skeptical and cynical kind of arenas, they look at apologetics and they say, well, you're just, you're just a bunch of people trying to plug all the holes. You're just trying to, to fill in the answers and do your multiple choice and get it all figured out. And you think you've got God all figured out and this and that. And that's really not what it is. Right. And it's, you know, it, yes, for me, I want answers. I'm asking questions because I want to know the answers. But I also recognize that God doesn't reveal everything about himself or about the world in the Bible. So there are things that are going to have to live in some kind of mystery. Yes. And I think that it's it's a healthy mentality to say, look, if there's an answer, I'm going to believe God on that yeah. answer. Yeah. And if he hasn't given us an answer on this, then I'm content to have some mystery there. And like you, you know, like you said, the, 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 the push and pull of a relationship is that you, you do learn more about that person as time goes on. And that person's not always going to agree with you. There's, there's going to be times when you, when you, you're at odds with each other and you're trying to, to figure out, you know, God, why, you know, read the Psalms and in all of the, the uh, Psalms of lament and these things where, where, the psalmists are, com, you know, bringing their complaints before God, and mm. and it's so beautiful because they're they're bringing their complaints to the source of yes, yeah. all creation. In fact, recently, um, well, I've read this before, but I shared it on Facebook about Charles Spurgeon. A lot of people know, you know, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, mm. and what a lot of people don't realize is that he struggled deeply with depression. Yeah. And he uh, actually encountered, there was, there was these guys that were slandering him and, and speaking all these lies about him. And he, had, he was dealing with a lot as, as this really powerful kind of well-known preacher. And he also uh, had gout and he had extremely painful gout. And so there, in, in, uh, he, he's writing about the racking pain of the gout. And he says this, he says, when I was racked some months ago with pain to an extreme degree so that I could no longer bear it without crying out, I asked all to go from the room and leave me alone. And then I had nothing I could say to God, but this, now this is what separates like a progressive type approach to God with Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) So he says, he's got this racking pain and this is all he has to say Mm. to God. He says, thou art my father and I am thy child. And thou as a father art tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as thou makest me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him and sustain him. Will you hide your face from me, my father? Will you still lay on a heavy hand and not give me a smile from thy countenance? And he goes on and talks about how he pleaded with God. And 
And God actually healed him that night of gout. And he said that pain never returned. Mm. Now, not everyone gets that result. Of course, we know that God allows some of us to struggle longer or maybe never get that kind of physical healing on this side of heaven. But what really stood out to me about Charles Spurgeon's response to almost the same question that we see from skeptics and progressives a lot, which is, hey, I would, if I was God or if I was a father, I wouldn't let my child go through this. But his response was to take that complaint right to the father yes, and, and to trust, like we're talking about with trust. And so I, I just thought that was, that was kind of a, a great response to really the same kind of question that, that I think people are asking. It's, it's human to ask those questions. Absolutely. And not only human, like the authors of scripture um, also went through seasons of doubt. I mean, this, mm. this was a game changer for me too. Like Moses arguing with God on Mount Sinai and pleading, right. pleading with him, like, no, don't, this is unjust. Why, why would you want to destroy a whole nation? And, and then God answers his prayer and, and Moses sees his glory or Habakkuk, Habakkuk, his name means um, wrestler. So he's like the world's first. I love first, Habakkuk. Yeah. The world's yes. first luchador. <laughs> if you're a fan of Nacho <laughs> Libre. Um, but yeah, he, he stands in his little tower. He's like, I'm not going to go until... You give me the answer. John the Baptist, my goodness. He's like, are you the yeah. most? He baptized Jesus, right? He actually got to yeah. see and touch Jesus. He heard the he audible the voice of God. He heard, yeah, he heard God, God say, this is my son, you know? And yet he's in prison, languishing, doubting, and like, are, are you the Messiah? Should, should we look for someone else? Um, I think knowing that suddenly, well, it, it, it gives space in our life. It explains Jude 22. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. You know, I, I yeah. found out recently that word merciful that's in Jude 22 um, is actually used to describe a physician mending a broken bone. <laughs> so like, wow. like Spurgeon or like John the Baptist or Moses or Habakkuk or, you know, so many others who have had questions, C.S. Lewis, um, that moment of doubt is so excruciating. It's so painful. Yeah. And I think that's why as a church, the church, you know, Big C Church, the worst thing we can do um, when someone's struggling, when someone has questions, is to shame them or marginalize them or make them feel that they're less spiritual for asking the questions. Um, that, I agree, at yeah. any at any point where you need to be there for them, that's it right there. Like that's the time to mend the broken bone. That's the that's the time to be that faithful presence to walk by their side to let them know you're a safe space for them. Um, and yes. no that no one showed more mercy to the doubter than Jesus. Uh, Remember a great commission. He gathers his disciples together and he's like, okay, go. You've been with me. Now go preach the gospel. You've seen me. Here I am resurrected. And it says some worshiped and some doubted. And that's, yes, I know they're, they're seeing him in his resurrected body and they're still doubting. Yeah. If I, like if I were Jesus, I'd be like, okay, uh, doubters B team, right? Worship. (laughs) Let's go. Um, send the doubters home, but he, he doesn't, um, both, both were commissioned, both were sent. And, and that means that that when we struggle, God is there with us. He's showing mercy to us and there, there's relationship, there's intimacy that can be found in the act of wrestling. I mean, wrestling by definition is one of the most intimate things you can do. Right. So if you're yeah. so if you're going to wrestle with God, it's going to be intimate and sweaty and awkward and may involve armpits. Um, right. <laughs> but, but it's it's how your relationship grows. It's like Jacob. It's how your name is changed. 
Um, you may have limp at the end of it, but but you will be changed at a fundamental level. And like like you you're writing about um, the act of wrestling, you realize oh, there's some answers here. <laughs> there, mm. there there's truth to be found. Yeah. We don't just punt everything to mystery. We we discover okay, sure there is a place for mystery in my faith, and there are some things that are unresolved. And, and someday, because I see through a glass dimly, I, but I will see face to face and I'll see him who is the answer. But on this side of eternity, there actually are some really robust, interesting, thoughtful questions, whether it's the historicity of Jesus or, you know, questions around violence in the Bible or questions around the existence of God. Like thinkers and theologians and philosophers, poets, artists have been wrestling with these things for millennia. And you start to plumb those depths, and that can be one of the mm. most intriguing, enriching experiences for your faith. Well, that's good stuff. Uh, you mentioned Justin Brierley's podcast that were in which I just had a discussion with Lisa Gunger. You were also on Justin's podcast last May, and you talked with uh, a guy named Andrew White, I believe is his name, yeah. who you know was a Christian and really convincingly strong Christian. From hearing his story, it was very evident that he really understood Christianity and, and was very sincere in his faith, but he went through a process of deconstruction and now just identifies as agnostic. And I can't remember which one of you brought up a metaphor, but I want to talk about it because it really bugged me that <laughs> that you guys didn't get to finish talking about this yeah. metaphor. It was like he kind of brought up this, this idea and then you had to go to break and move on. So you didn't get to talk about it, but it's been bugging me ever since I heard it, which you did a great job, by the way, as well. Um, but the metaphor was doubt being like the big boulder that Indiana Jones was being chased by in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. So many people remember mm-hmm. it's an iconic scene. He's running down that that tunnel and this bull, he's got nowhere to go on either side and this boulder's coming after him. He's just running out trying to beat the boulder. And so Andrew said, you know, I stopped, you know, the boulder got me and it crushed me basically. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this boulder of doubt. And then mm-hmm. he kind of implicated that maybe with you, you just darted off into a, <laughs> you know, a side room or yeah. something, or you avoided, somehow you avoided the, the boulder. And then I think Justin said something like, well, maybe Dominic turned around and crushed, you know, faced the boulder and crushed it. <laughs> and it really, I, I, it's been bugging yeah. me ever since, because the, the immediate thing I thought of when you all were talking about that is that I don't think that you darted off into a side room. And I don't think you victoriously turned around and crushed it either. I think like how I feel at least is that you did stand to face it though and realized that it really wasn't as heavy as you thought maybe. Mm. And, And it didn't crush you. It pushes against you still, maybe even, yeah. but it wasn't yeah. really a boulder. Maybe it was made out of, you know, some kind of heavy uh, paper mache or something where it's still <laughs> irritating, it's still there, <laughs> and it still kind of pushes up on you, but it didn't crush yeah. you. And it didn't, you know, it didn't run you over. And, and that's how I kind of was thinking about the metaphor, because I think almost what was represented in both of their comments was like, almost that, that certainty versus doubt thing that that we get into. And we're going to talk about that in a second, but like I've talked about, and like you've talked about the opposite of doubt is not, uh, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And so sometimes I think Christians also incorrectly pit certainty against faith. faith. Biblical faith isn't described as being 100% certain with no doubts at all. In fact, you can't even have doubts mm-hmm. if you don't 
those kind of come up within the context of faith. You can't doubt something if you don't already have faith in it. And so I want to I ask you, first of all, if you want to comment on that metaphor too, you feel yeah. free to do that. But also let's talk about doubt. What, what is doubt and what is faith and how do those things work together? How do you work that out? Oh, man. Well, ah, what you just said there is so beautiful and so well put. Um, and yeah, I think that's where the Indiana Jones metaphor starts to break down. Uh, there, there's this poem um, by a Lebanese poet, uh, Cahil Gibran. He, he once said that um, pain, uh, doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. Um, mm. And yeah, my, my heart went out to Andrew White, uh, which, by the way, what a, he was a delightful guy, super, yeah. super kind. And um, so that, that we had a great conversation, although I had food poisoning. Um, but he I know soon, you told me that. Yeah, so if you listen to, to Dominic's interview, you will be amazed because he did so well. But he actually had horrible food poisoning. Yeah, he I was like, that, so. I warned Justin. I'm like, I might need to run out any moment. But, you know, my heart went out to Andrew because um, in his story, yeah, doubts kind of had shipwrecked his faith. And, and that, it was really sad to see that it's that verse again, be merciful to those who doubt. And I, you know, I told him later, I'm like, you know, it doesn't mean the story's over. Like you may be in a part right now, you feel like the boulder of doubt has crushed you. Um, but the deep faith actually still calls down to you and it, and it might look different. Um, but it, it, it's still there. Um, mm. and so I think having a, a clear understanding of what doubt is, because you're right, like, so many people right now, um, they automatically assume that doubt is the same as unbelief. And that is why people suppress it. They, they, yeah. but it unbelief is a sin, right? You look in scripture, unbelief is a sin. Um, and yeah. if doubt is the same as unbelief. Then therefore, what do you do with the sin? Well, you repent of it, you turn from it, you suppress it, you get rid of it, whatever. But mm-hmm. in scripture, you, you see doubt is more nuanced than that. Um, doubt is, actually comes from this old Latin word, dubitare. And uh, dubitare means two. So, and, and you see this culturally as well, if you're into anthropology, um, the way doubt has been used in different cultures historically is around this idea of two-ness. So like the ancient Chinese, um, they had word pictures, right, uh, for their mm. origin letters. And their word picture for doubt is of a man with a foot in two separate boats. <laughs> um, mm. Or I think James speaks into this too, like the man who doubts is He's double-minded, right? He's tossed back and forth. So doubt is that moment when you're torn between these incompatible feelings and desires and what you've heard is true and yet some life experience, what your pastor told you and what some progressive podcasts, Christian podcasts has just told you (laughs) and uh, life experience and suffering and the, the chaos of relationships versus Verses that, that come to mind. And it's like there's this, this tearing that, that happens in you and you're not sure what, what is true. And what I argue for, it's which is incredibly disruptive. Like if, if doubt is tunis, it's a, it implies a tearing. Um, it, it's incredibly disruptive and painful. But it can also be faith's greatest opportunity to grow. But if you begin mm-hmm. to look at that moment, not as a threat to your faith, but actually say, you know what, it's allowing me to go through this. I have these questions and I think there are answers out there. And I believe God wants to walk me, walk with me through this. And as you begin to lean into that, as you begin to ask the hard questions, as you dig into the books, as you uh, share your concerns and, and heartaches with others and community, faith in starts to grow. And um, so I do believe that it doesn't always have to be the story of conservative Christian 
then gets swayed by a progressive Christian kind of ethos, then moves on to agnosticism or whatever. Um, I think there is another story to be told, and, and mm. you can actually come back to a robust historic faith that embraces mystery and wonder and complexity. I love it. That's great stuff. Uh, you note some unhealthy ways that Christians can sometimes tend to deal with doubt. So you're a pastor, you're walking with people who experience these kinds of doubts, um, and especially given your story in the book that you've written, I'm sure people are drawn to you as well to bring their doubts to you and as a pastor. And so I know that you have that pastoral mindset toward people who are experiencing these kinds of doubts, but what, what are some some things to avoid when, when a Christian experiences doubts, what are, what are some unhealthy ways you've seen uh, Christians approach the doubts that they're experiencing? Yeah. I mean, I think the two primary unhealthy ways are we either idolize our doubt or demonize it. Uh, mm. And by demonize it, like, we're, okay, yeah, we suppress it. We pretend it's not there. We cloak it with Christianese um, and just act like everything's okay when it's not. That's unhealthy. But so is um, idolizing our doubt and putting more trust in our doubt than in the thing we're doubting or assuming because we have a question that therefore our faith is not true. So, you know, you think, for example, of, say, the 19-year-old who goes off to college, raised in a Christian home, is assigned to read The God Delusion. They read half of it, you know, by Richard Dawkins. Mm. And yeah. they're, they're like, you know, three weeks into the semester, then announce on Snapchat, I'm an atheist, everyone, right? And everyone's <laughs> right. like, what? You know? And, and what I want to say in that case is, okay, what you've just read and what you've experienced in this college classroom, it's raised some really good questions, some really valid questions. Let's take a season of your life and let's go into and, and, and wrestle. Let, let's don't just settle for the low hanging fruit, um, yeah. but find community and read sources on both sides, find the best arguments on both sides and, and let, let's hash it out. So I, I think the worst thing we can do is idolize our doubt um, or, or demonize it. Both of them are unhealthy. Instead, I think God wants us to wrestle with him through it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point you bring up about idolizing doubt. I think there's probably people listening going, "What? who would idolize doubt? But it's actually a phenomenon I've observed yeah. quite a bit. You yeah. know, as I've studied the progressive movement, it's almost, I think Ann Kennedy was on my podcast and referred to it as a culture of doubt, almost. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a rite of passage. It's You're actually not even considered all that spiritually mature unless you've you know, not just that you've walked through a season of doubt, but that you actually, you know, dive right into that doubt and kind of live in that space. And I, I see all the time where people will refer to this progressive writer or that progressive writer as someone who gave people a safe place to doubt. And, mm -hmm. and of course, I'm looking at that going, no, that's actually the least safe place yeah. to doubt because yeah. there, there is, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this too, as I've thought about doubt and I've written a little bit about doubt as well. You know, people talk about all the different kinds of doubts and I think that, that that's valid. Like you mentioned, the problem of evil is, is a type of doubt that, that can bubble up in people. There's moral doubt. There's intellectual doubt. There's sometimes you doubt because you're just tired. You're physically tired and you can't, your brain isn't, you know, firing on all cylinders. There's all kinds of different things that can be underneath our doubts. But ultimately, mm. I think there's really only two kinds of doubt. Mm. And I think that the two kinds of doubt, and I'd love your thoughts on this. It's the first type of doubt would be honest doubt seeking answers. 
Mm-hmm. Not that you're always going to, you know, land on pretty little neat, tidy answers, but, but doubt seeking answers. And then the second kind of doubt would be doubt seeking justification for what you've already decided. Oh, and so, yeah, you know, like a, yeah. like a justification for unbelief that's already underneath the whole yes, thing. Yes. And so, you know, and I, there's no guarantee, you, you know, you could take both roads and end up in different places, mm-hmm. but what I see in that, that culture of doubt sometimes, or what you're even maybe hinting on with the idolizing of the doubt is that there's this, I'm going to, if I resolve this doubt, I'm going to go find another one and I'm going to just stay in this place of doubting mm-hmm. and, and not really try to try to resolve or reconstruct anything. And I think that I agree that that idolization of the doubt is incredibly unhealthy and it's very unfruitful too, yeah. as far as giving you any kind of a, a solid foundation for, for a cohesive worldview. Yeah. I mean, you just raised a really important issue and this is like the dark side of doubt. This is where doubt can go wrong. And um, I mean, it stings like this is a hard point to digest and it can be taken, I think, the wrong way, too. But the fact is, like, sometimes doubt can be a smokescreen for sin. Um, Mm. It can can be an excuse to live without moral boundaries. Um, Sometimes we leverage doubt to justify our own brokenness. Um, the, The mind won't believe what the heart won't obey. Um, mm. and, and I think we have to really ask ourselves the hard question of where do I want this to take me? Um, am I, am I asking these questions because I genuinely want the answer or am I going down this path because I kind of have this angst of growing up in a Christian home and now I want to rebel and kind of set my own course and trajectory, or I don't like what happened in that church and they're all a bunch of hypocrites. So I'm going to find mm. justification to leave the church, right? We right. have to be willing to doubt our doubts. We have to be willing to ask ourselves the hard and uncomfortable questions um, and really be truthful about one asking our soul, what do we want from this? <laughs> Where mm. do I want this path to take me? And, oh, man, it breaks my heart because, um, and I understand it because to a certain degree, I, I, I've been there too in the past, but there are, there are people I know right now um, who've kind of gone down this path who at one point were involved in the life of the church and following after Jesus and asking the tough questions, but then kind of got caught up in like the progressive Christian movement. And, you know, one thing they do well um, is ask questions and that's great. Right. Like Jesus asked questions over 300, yeah. 300 times in the gospels. He asked questions and invited disciples to ask questions of him. Questions are awesome. Um, but questions just for the sake of asking questions to sound intellectual or to sound interesting or mystical, that's not enough. Like there, there has to be a wrestling through the answers as well. And so I, I, for me, like the alarm bells go off when it's just asking questions for the sake of asking questions. The alarm bells go off if the path of deconstruction is going to lead you to greater isolation. I think doubt's greatest strength mm-hmm. is secrecy. And like removing yourself from the community of faith, like it can actually be one of the most devastating things you can do. Um, mm. You know, Anne Lamott, she uses this uh, analogy of how the ancient Chinese would, if they broke a vessel, um, rather than throwing the vessel away, they would actually cover it with a gold leaf and they'd set it back on the shelf. And it was their way of saying the brokenness is what makes it beautiful. Um, we're going to own the brokenness. And I think the church has to do a better job at adorning people with grace when they're going through those times of doubt. And rather than excluding ourselves from the community of faith um, in seasons of doubt, we, that's when we need to press in more than ever. Yeah. Well, and, and you bring up a great point 
by quoting Anne Lamott because the progressive church really, you know, there are some things, some questions they've asked, some critiques they've brought in, and I've talked about this in the past as well, that were legitimate, you know, and I think that, and this is the final, you know, we've about out of time, but I want to ask you one more question that kind of has to do with this, because one thing the progressive church tends to do well is accept people who Mm -hmm. are struggling. Yeah. And, and um, how can, what do you think churches, biblically sound churches can do to better help Christians who might be struggling with doubt? Yeah. I mean, I I think we just need a better theology of doubt, (laughs) to Mm. be honest. Like I I think too many churches are quick to demonize doubt. I think, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that, but essentially we've gotten our theology from Genesis three, where Satan uses doubt in a destructive way in the garden. Mm. Um, But I think you can go back to Genesis one and see that God created a world where questions and mystery was part of the package. And yet at the same time, he makes us curious because he wanted us to explore and engage with him and pursue him and live in relationship with him. If your theology of doubt, and I unpack this in chapter one, if it starts there in the first part of Genesis, to me, that's a game changer. And I think as, as a church, we just need a deep, deep rethink of how we approach doubt, our theology of doubt, how we treat people who go through times of doubt. And I tell you what, like at no other point is this more crucial than right now. Like Mm. we're seeing a lot of people uh, walk away from the faith, Um, but then we're also seeing Christian leaders um, who are struggling with doubt at like a deep level, like Joshua Harris, you know, walking away, um, from his faith just, just recently, um, Hillsong worship leader, Marty Sampson, you know, another tragic story. And a lot of people are just, they're hurting, they're struggling, they're publicly saying, I don't know if I believe any of this anymore. And so now's the time as the church where we need to engage these issues. And that's why I'm so excited for your book, because um, I think it's going to be so timely, so important, so necessary. And uh, it's one that I think really will help shape the, the, the ethos of the church in a, in a healthy way. Well, I hope so. I hope that's true. And, and pray for me. And if you're listening, pray for me. Also pick up Dominic's book, When Faith Fails, Finding God in the Shadow of Doubt. Connect with Dominic on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Dominic Doan. Dominic, thank you so much. This was just a fascinating conversation and uh, just really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. I loved it. Thank you so much. enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to elisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.